Welcome to Get Up in the Cool, old-time music with Cameron DeWitt and friends. This week's episode is very special to me. It's my interview and jam with Carl Barron, probably my most requested guest on Get Up in the Cool. My friend Stephen Landis, former and probably future guest of the show, taught me my first tunes, but Carl Barron hosted my very first old-time jam, and that's when, for better or worse, my life took a turn. He's another one of those people that I spent a lot of time with, but I barely know because we're too busy playing tunes to talk. So I learned a lot about Carl in this interview, and not just through our verbal conversation. Before recording this episode, I mostly associated him with the chestnuts that are typically played at the Mermaid Inn Jam in Germantown, Philadelphia. But playing one-on-one with Carl is a much different experience. His old-time palette is very sophisticated, and he draws from a deep, deep well of musical knowledge and experience, and uh, the man likes some quirky tunes. If you find yourself becoming a fan of Get Up in the Cool, maybe this is the week you take it to the next level and sign up to support the podcast on Patreon. Go to CameronDeWitt.com and click the Patreon button, or click the link on your phone in this episode's description, or follow the link on the Get Up in the Cool Facebook page. Then uh, choose the amount of money that works for you to regularly donate. It really does help me keep the show running on time, and it pays for trips to record people that I wouldn't have access to normally, and uh, making best of 2016 CDs. Also, there's some cool rewards in there, like the weekly bonus track or the MP3 downloads. For this week's bonus track, Carl and I play the LNN rag, and it was really fun. In fact, it was so fun that if I were you, I feel a little left out. But it's really easy to sign up. You can do it on your phone while you listen. Then you can go listen to the bonus track backlogs. There must be like two hours of bonus track material by now. All right, Carl and I are going to start things off with a tune called Ricketts Hornpipe. Enjoy. Thank you. 
<laughs> banjo duets. Banjo duets. Carl, that's yeah. the first time I've heard you play banjo, I think. Well, <laughs> it sort of faded away because there's so many good banjo players around and, uh -huh. and they needed me to play fiddle and a lot of times I'll just play whatever needs to be played. And this has been really fun uh, getting ready to do this uh, show with you because I only really know, as I was telling you earlier, Carl Barron, the, uh, the tune, uh, I'm sorry, the jam leader, but I, I don't get to talk with you one-on-one -on -one very much uh, and I don't get to uh, hear what other tunes are rattling around in there, what, what other tunes are on your mind and under your fingers, so it's been cool to... Uh, get get these other tunes ready and hear those other recordings yes this jam leader mermaid thing was sort of a default yes beverly smith started got the the jam started at yes. the mermaid and then she moved south and uh, i started sending reminders out and became the default leader for that i'm so glad you stepped up how long ago was that when she moved south i don't know i could say 10 years but it could have been 12 or could have been 15. Yeah. I don't, I, time stretches out and I don't even realize it. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, um, so the Mermaid Inn jam. Now, the, the Mermaid Inn is late 1700s? Is that when it was built or established? I, I, I don't know. It's a plaque but, on the wall. But ever since I've been, I guess, in Philadelphia, they've always had music at the Mermaid Inn. Yeah. It's like five days a week. Yeah. There's a musical event. I guess except for the day the theater people use it. The theater people use yeah, the Mermaid Inn? <laughs> there's a theater group. I had no idea. And they have a meeting. And yeah, if you look at the calendar, I think it might. What kind of theater? Do I, they do? I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> you haven't checked it out yet? <laughs> no, no. But they have, still have open mics. Yeah. The open mic, I guess, moved to the Mermaid. It used to be yeah. at Kavanaugh's. And we used to play. We used to have jam. We used to go to Kavanaugh's, I guess, after Tuesday night dance sometimes. We used to go to some bar after mm -hmm. Tuesday night dance in the seventies. We learned a few tunes in the in the in those days. So my personal old time history, my going to the jams, Mermaid Inn was the first jam I ever I ever went to, and uh, everyone said yeah. get in touch with Carl Barron. He'll tell yeah. you. He'll put you on the email list. And then I started coming, and uh, that was back when I was. I didn't know all the etiquette, and you all were very patient with me when I would, as a banjo player, say, hey, let's play Angeline the Baker, that yeah, tune yeah, that yeah. I just learned, and things like that. And you're like, maybe yeah. we'll play that one a little later, Cameron. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Good suggestion. Yeah. Uh, but it's Yeah, we don't fun. have a... Yeah, yeah I, as I was talking about yesterday, there's only one rule I have at the Mermaid, <laughs> and that's whoever suggests the tune has to signal when we're finished playing it. Yes, yes. <laughs> Because we allow guitar players to suggest tunes, yeah. or banjo players, anybody can suggest a tune. They don't have to start the tune, but they yes. have to stop it. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's it. Yeah, because you have to have someone to blame for when it's gone <laughs> too long. Well, you have to just leave it, you know, you find, find a space. Sometimes you can find different ways to play it that just happens. Yeah. Um, I find jams, uh, there was an art movement back in the 60s called Happenings. Happenings. They were pieces that were created by an artist that was dependent on the audience that came to view view it. And so the whole, entire experience depended on who was in the audience or with you because you wasn't you weren't sitting. Right. You were moving around. It was usually sometimes what they call an environment. Yeah. 
anyway, sometimes I, f- I find jams, sometimes happenings, and sometimes I find myself playing things that, well, I've never played it really this way before. And, yes. And the fingers just do it, and the brain, because of what's incoming from yeah. the other people who are playing in the jam. Yeah. It's just so, so it's an interaction. Happening. It's an interaction. Yeah. Things that result from interactions. I know when I play, particularly when I play banjo for a fiddler that's new, I'm trying to match my setting to what they're playing. Certainly. And, you know, but, you know, I've played backup a long time, so. Now, you said an interesting phrase there. You said things result from interactions. Yes. Uh, You're a a biochemist or or were a career biochemist. Right. Maybe, like, before we get into the the old time story, tell us, like, how did you get into science and does your your career as a scientist, does that play into in any way to the way that you approach music? Um, no. No, not at all? Not at all. I spent so much of my analytical brain yes. doing science. Yeah. When I went to play music, I didn't want to bother with any analytics. I don't know what all these different modes are that I hear people talking about, especially uh-huh. in Irish <laughs> sessions. You know, there's the Dorian and the Melodians and all these. I can't tell you what. I know there are words to me, yeah. but I yes. don't know what they are musically because... I just never went into that analytical form. So for you, would you say that old time music has been a sort of way to maybe decompress from like... All music that I've all done. All music. That yeah. I've done since, you know, I've played or sung music all my life yeah. from the time I could talk. So especially when I got into science, it was a way to decompress yeah. or to approach, let my brain do something else. Yes. Other than be analytical. Right. Now, I may be a little more analytical since I've retired, since uh-huh. I'm not using that part. <laughs> right. so I'm no longer using that part of my brain in the lab. Right. Uh, so things might have changed for me a little. They change year by year anyway. Yeah, may- maybe or maybe not. A few minutes ago, you played me three different versions of <laughs> U Piney Mountain and discussed the intricacies of them. So well, I think it sneaks in there a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's like, it's like well, you know three versions of the same tune and they're all valid versions and even though I don't play any of them exactly as the source but they definitely led me on the path to how I play what came from that version or what came from this version that's pretty much how I play it's like sometimes I've gone back and listened to the source recordings like five or ten years later say when did I start leaving out that note Yes. And then what I play evolves again a second time. Mm-hmm. It's, it's all, to me, it's like an evolution over time and over experience and who you play with. Yeah. So before we move on to the next tune, uh, you said that um, uh, Frank George, uh, that's his version of, of Ricketts? Well, it was, it's from his setting. From his setting, it's yes. In, you know, it's definitely inspired by how we played the setting. Yeah. And he, he was involved in, in you sort of converting into he, being an old-time he, musician? He was, well, maybe not directly. Well, in some ways. Um, a year and a half before I left Colorado in the 60s, I saw this film on the Festival of Smokies. And so when I went to Colorado, I went to Charlottesville, Virginia to do a postdoc. I figured, well, I might as well play old-time music because I'm there. Yes. And it's around there, and I went to the Festival of the Smokies, 
which was in early June, and I met Frank George there and a banjo player who was with him, Trina Walewski. And I spent the weekend playing with him. Two months later, uh, Mark Campbell and I crashed Armin Barnett's alternate Gaelic festival, and there was only one person I knew there, it was Trina Malewski. And she said, well, the next week that the Morris brothers are having their festival in Ivydale. I said, you should really go. So I went, and I, I was only playing guitar at the time, and I played backup guitar a lot, and uh, really liked all these different fiddlers, and everybody there was, during the year talked about Glenville, the West Virginia State Folk Festival, which I then went to in 73. And I heard Melvin Wine then. And I don't remember if I had barely started playing banjo or had not started playing banjo yet, but I loved the way he played the fiddle. It was something about stylistically. It wasn't, you know, he wasn't like the most technically great fiddler, but the way he, the fiddle sounded out, that's what I really liked. And I kept returning to Glenville and I latched onto him and played banjo with him. And a lot of his tunes I play, maybe not be from his fiddling, but from how I played banjo with yes, the fiddle. Yes. And then later, because I never really played fiddle with him, I played banjo with him. So um, I kept returning to Glenville ever since. I think I've missed two since 1973. And that's a lot of festivals. Yeah. And so I've missed the Brandywine Revival. It's the same weekend. Oh, yeah. This is so, so Frank George, in some way, indirectly led me into West Central West Virginia. Yes. And there was a long, there were a lot of, there were like 12 really good fiddlers that were there. You know, besides Melvin and, if I go to my list, just to read down a few. Lee Triplett and Ira Mullins, Wilson Douglas, Harvey Sampson, Glenn Smith, Emery Bailey, Woody Simmons, Delbert Hughes. J.P. Fraley came to Glenville, yeah. even though uh, he wasn't there. Ernie Carpenter, Lester McCumbers, Elmer Rich, Terry Vaughn, just to name the ones that I could think up on the list. Yeah, yeah. Besides Melvin Wine. That's a lot of fiddlers in there, except for Frank George. They're all gone now. Now, are we... Uh are all the tunes that we're doing today from this this region? Yeah, that was my idea. Yeah, very good, very good. So they're all from fiddlers that are within that region. Yeah, perfect. So Frank Frank doesn't live very far from Glenville, and uh, Melvin lives in Braxton County, I think. And French Carpenter was I don't know if he was from Clay County. These are all counties that are around. Glenville's in Gilmer County. Melvin lived in Braxton County. So, uh, yeah, they were all pretty close to that area. Yeah. Is there any uh, continuity between the way, like their, their fiddle styles, or because they're in different counties, uh, the different styles, or how much of it? I, I don't know. I, I, it's, it's not like, you know, the round peak sound. Right, right. Because I think more musicians there got together and played together. Right. But in West Virginia, it seems like people, fiddlers played by themselves more or sought out one other fiddler. Like right. Wilson Douglas sought out French Carpenter yeah. and learned a lot from him. Melvin learned a lot from his father. I don't know where you know, all the other fiddlers necessarily learned from. And it's pretty steep. The hollers are deep and the ridges are high. Yes. 
And so you don't, traveling in those right. days was, was less so. I, there was certain individuality that developed and you yeah. don't quite hear the similarity in styles like you do uh, you know, in North Carolina, Virginia. Right, so it's, it's a little bit more like different family traditions or like um, relationships that formed. It's like a little easier to... Yet there are these tunes that everybody plays under a certain name that right. seem to be right. cousins related like you piney mountain or mm -hmm. old sledge yeah you know when they all say they learned old sledge from jack McElwain, including haley you know and no recordings of jack McElwain. Uh, so and they're all a little different yeah so um it's something's interpretive in there yes and they each had their own evolutionary path from hearing the tune to how they played it certainly and I think I'm no different in that sense. It's the music yeah. and not, it's the music plus your, whatever musical experiences you've had your entire life. Yeah. That affect how you play with no matter what instrument you play or type of music you play. Anyway, that's my feeling about it. Yeah. What's this next, uh, this next tune? Black oh, the Hat. Black Hat and the Briar Patch is a tune that I've, I guess I'll learn from Melvin Wine and I don't, I can't say I've ever heard another older fiddler play it. Hmm. That's one of the things is that through West Virginia you can find tunes that you know it's it, other people don't play. Yeah, like there are tunes that Burlheimers play. Like the spring's all muddy and the pond's all dry. I've never heard anybody else play that except for Burl. You know, none of the fiddlers in Central West Virginia played it, and there seem to be more tunes like that for each individual fiddler in West Virginia than in Virginia, North Carolina. So anyway, here's Black Cat yeah. and the Briar Patch. Thank you. 
delightful tune. <laughs> yes, I should. he learned it from his dad, I guess. And uh, so who, who knows where it came from? Yeah. At least I don't. Melvin Wine. God, no, God knows where it came from. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Thanks, God, for the tunes. Someday when we all get up there, we'll ask God, where did all where the tunes come, come from? from? Where's the source? <laughs> yeah. He's like, don't you want to know no. about <laughs> anything else? <laughs> no, we want to know about the tunes. All right, sit down. It's going to take a while. <laughs> Very cool. So... Um, he learned this tune from his dad. And yeah, are there yeah. are there recordings? Yes. Of the, Black do you Well, his the, first final record that he put out yes. called Cold Frosty Morning. It's yeah. on there playing solo fiddle. Is he the source though for this tune? As far as I know. Wonderful. I you know, I don't know any other source for this tune. Yeah. And the only other recordings are the ones in 1982 I went to fiddle tunes with him. And uh, we played a Friday acoustic concert. And uh, there were photographs of the concert, which was with Melvin and me and Bob Carlin played guitar with us. Yeah. And Kenny Hall came up later and the two of them played. So we played together some. Um, and so the recordings that I got, I got permission from Centrum to distribute that concert. I had paid somebody five bucks to send me a cassette of the concert because I thought you know I would like to have it yeah. so I've been usually been making 10 or 12 copies when I go to uh, the Melvin Wine Memorial concert which is in April late April and when I go to Glenville and I just put them on a table for anybody to take them because they're not for sale they're yeah. not for resale yeah but uh so, I thought it was pretty neat, you know. So the so the I mean, prior to that, to getting permission, I only gave it to the family. Right. There's a memorial concert every year. Well, they revived it. They when he turned to eighty, they started having these concerts in Sutton mm. around his birthday. Yeah. Uh, and then after he died, they stopped having them. They had one the last year because he died right before the concert was to take place. So they had it that year. But they, um, then they didn't have it for a long time. But then, uh, I guess, three and a half years ago, they revived having it and called it Melvin Wine sort of memorial concert or something like something of that nature. And you said he was 80 or in his 80s when he died? No, no, he was 93. He's 93? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, actually. How long, did, how long did you play with him? Well, I, w I was the first of the new revival of people yeah. as banjo player to play with him and then uh he liked he liked playing with women folk uh -huh. and then kate brett she was going for her phd in morgantown she was the second banjo player yeah and then she got her degree and left and uh, uh then ron mullenix who was a wonderful banjo player then he played with him hmm. so he's had three banjo players played with him at different over a period of time yeah all very good and they uh he had two cassettes uh hannah at the spring house and vintage wine and kate plays on one and ron plays on the other so the only recordings for me that are good are the ones that i got from the uh fiddle tunes concert i've never been to fiddle tunes where, where is that it's in 
it's outside of Seattle. Oh, that one. That's the one. Yeah, yeah. that didn't Bert, Bertram Lee start that? Well, he's involved. He's involved. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a crew of people. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I for, I got I got confused because um, I'm good friends with Scotty Leach. Uh, mm-hmm. His dad, I think, is somehow involved in organizing that. I don't know to what capacity, but well, he's the, he might be in Centrum or something. Yeah. I, I mean, those are the people I contacted because they run some other events at this uh, ex-military. It was a. Uh, I think it was a military area that was protecting the inlet to the harbor for Seattle. Yeah. And it used to be like big guns there. Yeah. So the Japanese couldn't get in, you know, to protect it during World War II. Yeah. So I forget, it's Fort something. I forget the name of it offhand. I'll have to check out. I haven't been to any of those West Coast festivals yet. I need to, need That's to the only, only time I went. Yeah. He, Melvin went two other times. I think he once went. He, he once went with one of his sons, and once went with Alan Jabour. So he was there at least three times. Yeah. Now, um, take us back a little before mm-hmm. you got into old time music. You were saying you do some. You started. Did you start with the folk music revival? No. Or you well, I don't know. That? I was born in 1943. Yeah. And. Uh, through leftist politics, yes, I was in sing, doing singing folk music from the time I could talk, probably. Yeah. And eventually, I wanted to accompany myself singing folk songs. Yes. So, I had learned piano and and I taught myself recorder and I started clarinet and I couldn't carry a piano around and yes. sing and I couldn't sing and play clarinet, so I, I learned guitar. Yeah. When I was 15. Yeah. And so I did a lot of folk music. I did blues, a lot of jug band stuff. Some of it was old time, but it just wasn't, uh, there weren't categories. It wasn't a strict category. Right, right. I guess there were the, the Friends of Old Time Music in New York or something that had concerts. They had Roscoe Holcomb up there. And, yeah. And there was there were a lot of other people up there. So I, I probably played some of that stuff. I just didn't really think of it in those terms. Right. But I knew it existed. and. But I think I really like jug band music more and ragtime. I got into ragtime music and stuff yeah. like that. When I I was in Denver for eight years in the 60s, in the mid-60s to early 70s. Well, I'd love to get your perspective on um, then how the old-time scene became what it is today and how those categories started um, because I'm fairly ignorant when it comes to that. I know that, like, I have this vague idea that there was a folk revival and that there's sort of an, uh, I don't want to say a diaspora or an yeah. exodus from there into like playing fiddle tunes, but also into other traditions. I, it's all kind of this hazy idea that I have well, this how it came f- to The be. folk revival started um, because producers found that people were buying stuff. So they, right, they then right. started designing groups and, yes. and it was... A, I think they probably based their sounds originally on the Weavers, right? You know, um, not rather than the Nula City Ramblers, uh-huh. <laughs> who started in the playing in the fifties. Right. I mean, I think that's probably when old time maybe got defined more for city folks. You know, from the Nula City Ramblers having a big influence, I think, in that. Uh, but as far as tunes and stuff like that, I think that started when, at a time when I was in Colorado. I mean, it started. 
you know, I've met people who were going to Galax in the 60s. Yeah. You know, and learning stuff. And I didn't move back east until 1972. So when I moved back, I sort of knew old-time music was there. Yeah. And I went to Charlottesville, Virginia and figured, well, I might as well play yes. old-time music because I'm here and I don't know how long I'll be here. Okay. But uh, I eventually got, it got uh, elevated to the top of the heap for me. Yeah. Uh, even though I still do some jug band and some blues on occasion. Um, but old-time music is what I like to play the most now. Yeah. How would you, like, how would you say that the, the culture of playing old-time music has changed, or how has it stayed the same? Where do you, like, perceive it to be going? And, yeah. Uh, well, I guess we, we could try to learn things from the older players yeah. who were around yeah. when we played, and, and older recordings... Then the, the recordings started getting reissued. Yes. The old recordings. County was responsible for a lot of that. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so we learned from that. So it's, uh, we didn't learn from the way of life of the people who were there. Right. In other words, I guess for us, the music is, was, is the music lives. Yes. And, you know, and the direction that it takes, you never know who's attracted to it because the people who were living that life, when bluegrass came around, they started playing bluegrass. Yeah. And for, they figured, we figured there was like a 25 year gap before old time music sort of came back. Right. But now when you go to Clifftop, you know, there are some of us who are in our 70s now. Yeah. But there isn't a gap, any 10-year age gap. You can go all the way back to under 10 years of old, yeah. years old. And there are players in every age group now. Yeah. So you know, who cool. knows where it's going. Yeah. Though in some cases, people are not as concerned with, with the original sources of the tunes. Right. I know when I teach somebody a tune, I always send them back to the source. Right. Let their path evolve from where my path evolved rather than evolving from me. Right. Especially because of the recording age, this is available, mm -hmm. you know, and it wasn't necessarily available to the older people because recordings hadn't started yet, and then you was passing it on, right. you know. That was that's that's really pretty much what it is. It seems like your uh, your your ethic about it for passing it on isn't necessarily like. A, a, a purist like you sh you need to like play it the way they did but more more like isn't this cool that you have access to this source recording like well sometimes you, yeah. I try to play it like they did right but what happens in my old life it's like uh, all these other things that have influenced yeah. me musically my entire life you know take hold at some point and stick their their uh, yes. uh, um, I can't say ugly face, and uh -huh. <laughs> though some may feel it that way, right. you know, but they start impinging yeah. on how I play. Especially, I think uh, ragtime jug band music has yes. a large impingement. It's come out more in how I play the fiddle than how I play the banjo. Right. But uh, there's um, a lot of people consider me a pretty raggy player, uh -huh. and I know that comes from all this other what came before. Yes, certainly. that I ever played the, before I played the fiddle. Yeah. Because the fiddle is the last instrument I took up. The very last one? Yes. I haven't done any since. No, I thought I would learn dobro and bought a guitar and 
I set it up as a dobro and uh-huh. have a bar and everything, but yeah. I never really follow through. Yeah. So the fiddle is the last instrument. Well, that Lord, I Lord knows you know enough. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know, I know. You fiddle, play that uh, fiddle, banjo, guitar, clarinet, and other simple winds. Do you do you play um, do you play klezmer music? I, I have, but not recently. Yeah. What do you normally when you play clarinet? Yeah. I, yeah. What do you What do you play? What style? Well, I. I still play classical music. Right. I play right. in the Ambler Symphony. Oh, what I forgot. You've told me. Now, this yeah, now, yeah. I'm not as enamored with classical music, you know, as I might have been in my younger days. Yes. But it's my gymnasium for all the muscles around in my face that are required to play the clarinet. So right. when I go play jug band music or blues on clarinet, yes. I have the ability to do it because right. I've stayed in shape. Yeah, it's a go to. <laughs> You know, yeah, the same gym. thing with yeah. It's going to like going to the gym in yeah. a sense, and you know, and I'm a good player. Yeah, and so, you know, I I enjoy the company. I've I've drawn other old time musicians into the Ambler Symphony. Yes, we have. Uh, what we least uh, th- there's three old time players and one player from who I met at an international jam. Yeah, who are all in the second violin section of the Ambler Symphony. Wonderful, <laughs> I love it. Keeping you sharp. I bet that's good for your. For I was actually a- asked uh, by a friend that I should come play in the second violin section, the Amos Symphony. But yeah. I'm not. I said I have no violin techniques. But I said, well, I'll come play clarinet. Yeah. And so that was back. I don't know, like in 1985 or six or something, and I'm still playing with them. Wonderful. Yeah. Is that like a a, commu- a community? There are there are like 30 community orchestras. Years ago, there was an article in the Enquirer about all. The orchestras in the Delaware Valley. Yeah. There were like thirty of them, and the Amherst Symphony is is one of them. Yeah. Somewhere in my computer, that article still dwells, and it can be useful because I I've you know, I met I met a clarinetist once at uh, at Gosh and Alpin just talking, and she had just moved up from Atlanta, and that was her instrument. You know, yeah. that's her only instrument, and so I sent her the article, you know, and. She actually played with the Ambler Symphony for a number of years, and now is playing with some other orchestras closer to home. So uh, you know, it's uh, you know, I think it's a great outlet for a lot of musicians who have other ways that they make a living other than playing music. Yes, certainly. which is what my parents encouraged me to do. Yes, that's how I got in science. You know, yeah. <laughs> they discouraged me from becoming a musician, uh-huh. but I never stopped playing music. Yeah, my entire life it seems like you have like a, a very sort of yin yang like like relationship with music it's like it feels a very specific part of your life whereas maybe some professional musicians have a little more complicated relationship with music because they depend on it to eat yes <laughs> you know but yes it must, it must be nice to have music just be all joy for you yeah yeah i i, I know there were some people that are making a living with old-time music but i don't I don't, I didn't think that was, you know, like some of the other musical professions, like yes. like for playing, you know, for performing jazz. I guess some of them are because they like to perform. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I've performed. For some people asking if I'm a professional mu- musician, my response is just well, well, sometimes people pay me money to play. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's not a driving force. Yeah. And I don't uh, I don't know how great a perform you know. I'm not as comfortable, like emceeing or right, something right. like that. I'm more comfortable playing than I am. 
Yeah, the, any theatrics that I do are in song delivery and not yes, yes. and not in the, the spaces in between the songs. Right, right. <laughs> Very good. Let's play that little, little rose. Little rose. I, I just need to get into C real quick. Okay. Oh, I guess the only thing I like about Little Rose is uh, this is pretty much the way Wilson Douglas plays it. Mm. Because uh, my friend Betty Vornbrock was probably the only person I play it with in a jam. Yeah. Um, she learned Wilson's version. Now, Lee Triplett played the tune, and we had learned that way back in the mid-70s, but it didn't catch on the way Wilson's. Wilson's mm. became more popular, I guess, in, in some circles. So this is the way Wilson played it. Or... How I play it evolved from the way Wilson. Yes. So actually, I think both versions should be on Slippery Hill. Yeah. Because I think they're both in Claire and Walt's book. Yeah. Now, you, you mentioned something real interesting. Um, you said that there are more than 12 notes <laughs> in the scale. And uh, you like to play somewhere kind of in between the major and the, and the minor third. Can you uh, talk more about that? Um. In the days when I was playing banjo, I, I was looking for a fretless. I found an old banjo, yes. I took the frets out. In those times, one of my favorite tunes was Greasy Coat. Yes. And I wanted to find out where that third was yeah. in Greasy Coat. And so 
I would just sit and play it on the fretless. And one time I stopped, I kept my finger on the note, yeah. picked up my whistle, and found out it was about a third up from C natural. Yeah. To C sharp, and it wasn't C sharp, and it wasn't C yeah. natural. And I remember I had another friend, he came, one time he was commenting on Facebook and talking about how there were 12 notes, yeah. you know, in a scale. And I said, you know that isn't true. Yeah. <laughs> it depends on what culture you're from, yeah. you know, because uh, there's a lot of other cultures that have, yeah. are, don't use the, the 12 note scale or, and then even in the 12 note scale, the temperate scale is an, a mathematical invention. Right. Each note is separated by the 12th root of two. I don't know if many of you may not realize that, but then there's another fifth. Uh, I guess what they, I don't know if it's um, what is it called. I don't know if it's a justified scale, but the other, the natural scale is yes. based on physics and vibration right. waves and natural overtones. Yeah. <clears throat> but I once tried to tune a piano by ear, uh-huh. <laughs> and when you cut start and you listen to the fifth and you come around and when you get back, it's not the same note anymore. <laughs> And that's because, and yeah. that's why the temperate scale was invented. Now, these, your so. ear for these kinds of thirds in fiddle tunes, are those, re are those related to a, uh, to a, a just scale? Or is it a different, like, concept of harmony that, that's I, going on? Or what, what? I don't know. It just feels like that's where the note goes. Yeah. It's like, and on the fiddle and the fretless, you're not limited by the fret. And so yeah. it's where my ear says, yeah. that's what I want to play. Right. And I can't tell you, you know, why it is. Yeah. All I know is, for me, that's what it is. Well, it's not, it's not like, um, it's not like I purposely are going for a particular place. I just, it just, you know, what the, what the ear tells me to do, that's, you know, that's what I do it. And I, you know, I think it sounds pretty neat. Yeah. But that's an after the fact. Yes, yes. Very cool. Well, um, we have a couple tunes. Speaking of playing, and uh, we're going to do some A flat. <laughs> some right, A flat modal tunes. Yeah, my other fiddle sounds better uh, in uh, A flat rather than in A. Yeah. For cross tune tunes. Yes. My rationalization was. It's about the same string tension yeah. as standard tuning. Yeah. But for some reason, I think this fiddle sounds better that way. And having played it up in A yesterday yeah. and playing it in A flat today, I think it definitely sounds better in A flat. So for those of you who want to like go back through this episode and learn <laughs> some of these tunes, you'll have to uh, go down or up a little bit depending on where you, or I guess down and up if you're playing on fiddle, yeah. Or retune your fiddle. Yeah, re retune that Well, fiddle. there are plenty of people that don't like to play in cross A and tune in cross G. But, I like cross G. Whatever. But but for this fiddle, yeah. the treble gets way, way too weak Yes, to go all the way down to G. Yeah. Now, it may work with other fiddles, but with this other fiddle that I've been using, it's it seems like A flat is the best thing for that. I also, I didn't notice this earlier. Is there a, a some sort of head on this fiddle? <laughs> oh, well, it's a lion's. It's a, a typical lion's head. A typical lion's head. There's a there's a typical lion's head, and then there are these ones that are uh, uniquely carved. Yeah. And I actually have a uniquely carved one, but 
I don't like how it sounds so much. So you mean like a typical lion's head, they all look like this? There's a typical lion's head where the, the hair is combed down, the part like the parts in the middle. <laughs> and you can find a lot of those. And yeah. th this fiddle also happens to be uh, a less expensive one because it's, um, it's, it's uh, what's called a Spanish neck. Uh, it doesn't have a block at the, where the neck joins the body. Oh. The actual, the neck goes into the body. The neck is the block. No. So it's a lot thinner block. It's huh. just the end of the neck that's glued to the top and bottom. Interesting. And so that's how guitars are put it together. Huh. So they call it Spanish neck after Spanish guitars. Yeah. Interesting. And I actually have only, I have pictures of one that was taken apart that was on eBay. It says fiddle sold for parts. And I looked at it and I knew immediately yeah. that was the Spanish neck. And if you look down through the end hole, you can see, you can see the end of the neck coming through rather than a, a block. Huh. And so it's inserted parallel to the top where normally the neck is inserted perpendicular down to the top yeah. into the block because it's easier to reset the neck that way yeah. with the Spanish neck. Uh, my fiddle doctor says he wouldn't want to be involved with trying yeah. to reset the neck. And so I, when he made a new fingerboard for me on that fiddle, he had a little wood underneath to raise the height of the fingerboard, so I have like a little, uh, um, I don't know, what is it, uh, wedge? Yes. Wedge-shaped piece of wood under the fingerboard. My, my, my fiddler, uh, fiddler nerd listeners are loving this, but yeah. <laughs> right, right, for the sake right. of everyone else, let's get into A flat. <laughs> okay. So which one do you want to do? Let's see. Let's play that uh, old Christmas. All, Christ All Christmas morning from French Carpenter. Thank you. 
That's a real interesting, real interesting tune. Yeah. I had to do a little bit of intuitive counting to learn that one. <laughs> yeah, there's the crooked tunes. There's a, yeah. Sometimes I play uh, old-time music in the midst of an Irish session. When the Irish players found out that I played fiddle, originally uh -huh. I never brought a fiddle. Uh, but they discovered some party. And one session I went to, the, he wanted me to come play in the middle of the session. He said, play another crooked tune. Play yeah. a crooked tune. <laughs> Do he, Irish he was, players not have any crooked tunes? Are they all pretty straight? Um, there are players who feel that the set dances are crooked. Yes. Uh, most of the set dances, I think, have like 14 measure second parts. Interesting. So I, I don't feel that those are quite crooked. However, the Blackbird has a 15 measure second part. Uh -huh. And uh, it took me a long time to, f to get through the twist to make it musical. Right, right. Yeah. And that's usually the hard, hard thing. Sometimes you get to the part that's where the twist is. And, it, yeah. and then there's the other tune, like the Avalon Quick Step. I once tried playing that for a square dance. <laughs> And it felt like it was a completely normal tune, and yeah, yeah. And I was stopped. Pick yes. another tune. Yeah, it's crooked. That would be tough to dance to. Yeah, so I love that tune though. Yeah, so yeah. so sometimes crooked tunes feel like there's a strong twist, and sometimes right. they feel like it's completely natural. Right. But often, more often, it's the, yeah. It's sometimes a twist to it. tunes are, are are all squared up, but they they sure don't feel like it. <laughs> In, in my, some some tunes are like that. I can't name any out. Oh, right, this backstep, Cindy. But when you get to the third part, yeah. I think the third part's cut short. But at the end of the fourth part, there's like an extra measure. So <laughs> right. over the entire length of the tune, it's regular. It's like I don't know, like 32 bars. You know, like you, you have to wonder: is did someone decide like we we want to play this at a dance? We got to tack on that extra beat at the end. Well, you can imagine whatever or make up whatever myth you can yeah, yeah. <laughs> do about how these uh, <laughs> things develop. Now, you, you said uh, um, that there aren't a lot of jam tunes in this in this recording session that we're doing right now. What, what, what makes a tune a jam tune? And uh, which ones of these would you not play at a jam? And well, why? I... I would play any of them at a jam if there were people that uh, right. people that played the tune. Right. I mean, like Little Rose. I couldn't start Little Rose at the Mermaid. Yeah. In a jam, but you know when I'm playing in Glenville and I'm playing with Betty and yeah. we're sitting around, we will. Yeah, yeah. So it depends on who you're playing with. Right. Um, um, so the, let's see the, but Old oh, Christmas Morning is was pretty much I think a sort of a solo tune. I sort of did my Christmas stuff at Glenville this year. Yeah. Uh -huh. In the fiddle contest. I didn't get anything, but I played this and I played Melvin Winans and called Christmas Morning. So yeah. So that's the two ends. Right. Because all Christmas is January 6th. Right. 12 days. It's, yes. it's 12 days. It has to do with the calendar. <laughs> I found my mother's birth certificate. She was born in the Ukraine. In November, 12 days before the date we celebrated in December 4th, we always celebrated it as huh. a birthday, but her birth certificate, she was born in 1907, so she was there before, while the czar was still there, and they still had the old calendar. Yeah, interesting. So, so How many Christmas tunes are there? Uh, Breaking Up Christmas. Right. There are probably some other, there are some Christmas morning tunes that yeah. are in uh, Irish. 
tradition. Yeah. So uh, I would love to collect. The, to collect this Christmas time's almost over. I think that's uh, John Carson. Huh. Uh, there's probably. I'm sure there's more. Yeah, we should make a make a playlist. <laughs> that's right. We've only got two months. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> two months to go. Yeah, it's pretty soon. Um, yeah. There we are, the end of October. So. Yeah. People, I know. I'm always looking for new Christmas music to listen to because I have this feeling around Christmas time where I'm always kind of. I want to listen to Christmas music specifically, but I'm kind of tired of, <laughs> you know, my old, the, the old same old records or whatever. So I want well, to find something It's new. Jose Feliciano. Jose Feliciano. Feliz Navidad. Oh, yeah. I, I'm, I'm sure you I could do with maybe that. hearing that one or, once or twice more. But that was another life. Christmas <laughs> song. A modern Christmas song. Yeah. yeah. Uh, let's... Um, Let's play this this last tune, and before we do, I just want to say thank you so much, Carl Barron, for being on Get Up in the Cool, and uh, it's been real neat listening to your stories and, and hearing hearing the way that you play, especially, like I said, outside of the jam set and getting to play with you one-on-one. It's a real, real treat, yeah. Uh, is there uh, anything you'd like to plug? Uh, how can people hear your music? Oh, well, in 2000, 2005, I made solo CDs, though... Um, uh, Queen Barbara Johnson is accompanying me on the yeah. <laughs> second CD, though she wanted the word Queen, though we put it in Hawaiian. Uh, I was, uh, there was, um, I can't remember exactly. So it's just, Wahini is the second term, but there's a term for the highest, meaning the Queen. Yeah. So she's a wonderful musician, and I just adore playing with her. And uh, Hobo Pie made a couple of CDs. They yeah. also were made back in the day uh, so they're all available from me yeah I don't know if they're available any place else we can. I don't know if Barbara has any or if Ray has any yeah <laughs> but so, uh, so if you if you want to uh, if you want to reach Carl um, you can tell me you want to reach him and get some of these CDs and I, I'll put you in contact with him or, or you can look me up on the internet you're probably through Banjo Hangout, Fiddle Hangout, if your member's there, you can send me an email message. Yeah, if you're... Uh, or, or if you're curious, I'm sure if you go out there, you'll find my email address and my <laughs> phone number and anything else. <laughs> it's, it's really not hidden away. Right. But I was amazed to find, you know, people's email and stuff like that. Yeah. They're, you know, they're out there. We should set you up a Bandcamp account. You know about these? No, that's what no. all the kids are, kids are doing these days. No, I don't know anything about that's band like camp accounts. New in, independent uh, pub, publishers, you know, like if you want to put your music online, but you don't want to have a label or something, you know. Right. Well, that's why yeah. I, when I found it, I um, for the first Hobo Pie CD, yeah. I went and bought a stereo microphone because I insisted that we do it live. Yeah. And we spent a, a while learning how to use the stereo mic where it had to be placed so that the yes. instruments didn't know power of the voices, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. So I said, well, I had this microphone now. I might as well make a CD yeah. of my own. So I did that. And I thought I would make a new one every five years. But since 2005, I haven't made one. Yeah. I had all these tunes that lined up that I was going to do, but I just never got around because it keeps changing yeah. on what I'm going to, what I want to do. So, well. You got a couple. You got a couple tunes now that we were that we're making now. <laughs> You're happy with how any of these turned out. Yeah. Uh, so, so this is uh, 
uh, um, Lester McCumber's version of You Piney Mountain, yeah. which I first heard on Jerry Milton's film, Little Snakes and Dog Days. Wonderful. Thanks again, Carl. wanted me to mention a few things. First, this year's annual Melvin Wine Memorial Concert is on April 22nd at 4.30pm. The square dance right around the corner is at 7, and that's in Sutton, West Virginia. Second, the West Virginia State Folk Festival will be Thursday through Sunday, June 15th through the 18th. That's in Glenville, and you can find more information at uh, wvstatefolkfestival.com. And third, Come by the Mermaid Inn sometime on a first Tuesday. The next Old Time Jam will be Tuesday, March 7th. If you want to buy any of Carl's CDs, get in contact with me through getupinthecool at gmail.com or the show's Facebook page, and I'll make sure to get you in contact with him. If you want to support Get Up In The Cool on Patreon, go to my website, camerondewitt.com. That's C-A-M-E-R-O-N-D-E-W-H-I-T-T.com. Click the Patreon button, 
find a level that works for you to regularly donate and uh, get rewarded for your generosity with shout outs on the show, sincere gratitude, weekly bonus tracks, and MP3 downloads. If you can't afford to pay for the show, uh, make sure to share it on Facebook, write a five star review on iTunes. If you know anybody with a music blog, send them a link. If you know any banjo makers or people in the audio equipment industry, share the show with them because they'll probably like it and maybe they'll sponsor the show and give me free stuff and make it even nicer for everyone else to listen to and i'm always looking for leads on new guests thanks for listening friends i'll see you same time next week for more get up in the cool 